Hello, I'm Alex Rutkeen. I'm a barrister at Third Nine Essex Chambers specialising in mental capacity law. And what I want to do for the first webinar of 2023 is take a look back at 2022 and go through some of the key cases decided by the Court of Protection in the past year. I'll also throw in one case from the Court of Appeal and a watch list space at the end in terms of an upcoming decision of the Supreme Court, which is going to be important and relevant to our area. So I'm going to share some slides and I'll also put the PDF of the, the slide link uh, attached to this webinar on my website as well. So I've divided these thematically and I'm going to start with welfare cases. The first one, even by the standards of the Court of Protection, um, is a particularly grim case, actually. Uh, it involves a, a woman and an, an abusive partner. And essentially what is going on is that the woman is saying, I would very, very much like to have contact with this person before he goes back to prison, um, in circumstances where it's very obvious that the reason she wants to see him is to have sex with him. Why am I bringing this up now? Uh, I'm bringing it up now because this is a really important case as the first reported application of a person-specific approach to decision-making in, in the sexual capacity zone. The Supreme Court in a case called JB in 2021 had said, in general, we think about someone's capacity to decide to engage in sexual relations in a general, non-specific forward-looking way. So it's not partner-specific. But the Supreme Court said there may be circumstances where actually the right thing to do, given that it's decision-specific, is to think about the decision in respect of an individual. And that's exactly what this judge has done. In general, the judge found KF had capacity to make decisions uh, to engage in sexual relations, but she didn't in respect of this partner because of his abuse and to the fact that she couldn't process the really very substantial risk that he posed to her. He obviously couldn't then go on and make any best interest decision in relation to her uh, ability to have sex with him because the Mental Capacity Act doesn't allow a best interest decision to be made. He did consider contact, and in this context of, look, well, contact and sex are really going to go more or less hand in hand. And he said, I don't think it's going to be in her best interest to have contact with him in circumstances where she might have sex with him. Although he did allow for contact with him, uh, supervised contact with him, so she could at least see him. She was very strongly expressing that desire. The second case is A and AC and GC. It's an important case um, for adding to the categories of situations, categories of cases where judges have said, in general, this is the sort of information which is likely to be relevant to the decision. Can I just emphasize that whilst the Court of Appeal in a case where we A said that's perfectly sensible to do that, you do always need to think about this decision being made by this person. So you can't just take, uh, as it were, the formula off the shelf, where judges have said this is the sort of information which is likely to be relevant. But it's a helpful starting point when the judges have gone down and gone through and thought, well, what sort of information is relevant? What sort of information is irrelevant? This is an example, an important example, because hoarding issues arise very, very often, actually, um, in, in the context of, of concerns around capacity. And in this case, the judge settles down and goes, I'm going to help with the, uh, with, with the support of the expert and counsel to sit down and think about what the relevant information uh, is in terms of the decision to live in circumstances which other people might consider constitute hoarding posing a risk. 
I'm not going to go through what that information is. I just wanted to flag it. That link there, hyperlink there, and all of these hyperlinks are to the case uh, reports. You can also uh, look at our capacity guide and our guide to relevant information because we've updated it to include this. The last case under the kind of broad welfare heading is TN and NHS integrated care body. One of the very last cases decided in 2022. Uh, frankly, an astonishing submission was made um, on behalf of the mother in the case, the mother of an adult uh, with quite profound cognitive impairments. The submission was made on her behalf that because of his profound impairments, which uh, and his inability to make decisions, she retained parental responsibility for him as a matter of law, notwithstanding the fact he was now an adult. So in other words, she was the person who got to decide, in this case, whether or not he had the, the COVID vaccine. Mr Justice Hayden uh, dispensed with that argument uh, very crisply, making clear that that's just not the law. It hasn't been for very, very many years. And also it's profoundly regressive to identify a, a parent as having responsibility for an adult child, legal responsibility. I would point out, of course, that the mere fact that somebody turns 18 doesn't mean that a parent doesn't continue to feel responsible. But there's a distinction between feeling responsible and therefore, and also, sorry, therefore, and also being someone who should be properly involved in decision making with the situation which can arise pre-18, where it's actually the parents call in the first instance whether or not the, 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 the intervention takes place. Uh, it's also helpful in this case in terms of vaccination because it's rein reinforcing the proposition that the court of protection and also other decision making in relation to COVID vaccination shouldn't be proceeding on the basis in relation to any individual person in respect of challenges to the underlying science underpinning vaccination or vaccination policy more generally. Court of protection is not there to have arguments or hear arguments about that. The court of protection is there to consider whether it is in the best interest of a person, if they don't have capacity to make this decision, to be vaccinated, which will include consideration of the medical risks, but also crucially consideration of their wishes, feelings, beliefs and values. Continuing and sort of focusing even more in on medical treatment, the first case there, William Verdon's case, we know that's his name because the judge has allowed his name to be published, uh, in large part actually because this was in order to try and secure access to a kidney, which William Verdon needed. It's an interesting case, a really important case, partly because, the reason it's interesting is, the case was framed as being as whether or not it was in William Verdon's best interests to undergo a kidney transplant in circumstances where there was doubt uh, on the medical side as to whether or not he would be able to tolerate the uh, operation and also the subsequent uh, steps required to make sure that the organ successfully, organ transplant successfully took place. But of course, the court of protection couldn't magic up an organ. And at the point that the hearing took place, there was no kidney available. So on one view, it might be thought a little odd that the court of protection was involved in a situation where there was no organ, why was it making a hypothetical decision? Luckily, um, and we know this because from press re reports, it stopped being a hypothetical because actually a, a, a kidney was found and from the press reports, it's clear that the transplant has taken place and so far, touch wood, it seems to be going very well. 
The next case is an important case, PH and Betsy Kowalada uh, University Health Board, because there, this was a situation where uh, about a, a, a man refusing to be fed. And the argument went that, okay, he may have mental capacity to make that decision. So applying the mental capacity act, there is no jurisdiction to do anything, but why should not the inherent jurisdiction of the high court step in, in circumstances where continued refusing of feeding was going to lead to death? Shouldn't the court, should the court really, as it were, just stand by and allow the person to refuse treatment? Mr. Justice Hayden said, yes, I'm afraid, well, I, I can't do anything in relation to the inherent jurisdiction because the Mental Capacity Act governs here and you can't use the inherent jurisdiction in effect just to circumvent the conclusion that the individual's got capacity. I would flag different considerations might arise if the person's decision to refuse feeding was being driven by someone else, coer coercion, duress. That's the sort of situation where the courts might be looking to say, is this this person's true decision? And there might be various things that the court could do, high court could do. We've done a, a guidance note about the inherent jurisdiction, which you might want to look at if you're interested. But certainly this is a case which is making very clear where, where, where the problem, if that's the right putting it, arises as a result of that person's own situation rather than their social situation. Mental Capacity Act, if that applies and you look and you apply in the test under the Mental Capacity Act, the person's got capacity, you can't do an end run using the inherent jurisdiction. Essen Birmingham Women's and Children's NHS Trust is a shocking case, frankly, because there a patient detained under the Mental Health Act was expressing a very strong desire to undergo a termination. The clinicians considered she lacked capacity to make that decision, considered it wasn't in their best interest to undergo a termination. It was only because of the efforts of S and her lawyers, her mental health lawyers, that she herself brought the case to court for a determination as to whether or not she had that capacity. And the judge found she did have that capacity. In a situation where there's doubt, it should never be for the person themselves to have to bring a case to establish that fact. What's also shocking about the case is that it took so long to get to court that by the time the judge was able to reach a determination that in fact she did have capacity to make this decision, the way the judgment reads, it makes it look like it was extremely unlikely she would actually be able to access the relevant medical professionals in time to comply with the time limit. It's a deeply disturbing case. More broadly, it does have observations from senior Judge Hilda about what the relevant information is to make a decision about termination. Turning to a mental health trust in BG, that was a case about an anorexic woman and whether it was in her best interests, in circumstances where she didn't have the capacity to make decisions about continued feeding, whether it was in her best interest to undergo compulsory feeding. There is a steady and really rather sad stream of these cases before the Court of Protection. This one had a particularly piquant flavour and was particularly piquant and has received quite a lot of attention because of the age of the woman in question. She was 19. And the judge endorsed the agreement of those before the court that it wasn't in her best interest to undergo compulsory feeding. And we know from the judgment that she then died. Can I just emphasize one point? And in fact, I've done a whole webinar on how to read a court of protection judgment. This was not, as some people have sort of characterized it, a situation where the judge was making any broader statement about the merits or otherwise of moving to what's sometimes called palliative treatment in this context. 
what he was doing was endorsing a plan which had been put together in respect of this particular individual. So he wasn't making a broader statement about what should happen with people uh, with anorexia where they are refusing feeding. So the two last cases on here, RD and AB and another, they're both about self-harm. The first one is a case where Mrs. Justice Levan was grappling with a situation where somebody was really very badly self-harming and repeatedly self-harming. And it was really very likely if they continued self-harming, they would die. And the question was, was it in their best interest to impose measures designed to try and stop that taking place? And very specifically on the facts of this case, Mrs. Justice Levan says, I don't think it is in her best interests. Again, as with so many of these cases, these, this is fact specific. This is not a judge saying what should always happen. This is applying the MCA to a difficult case. Linked, I mean, not the same person at all, but the linked, linked idea of self-harm, the Gloucester, Gloucester City Council case, it's a bit odd. It's not actually a judgment. It's an order made by the court with a very long series of recitals. So things in the order explaining what's been going on. But the reason to bring it to your attention is that this was somebody who was self-harming, subject to deprivation liberty authorization, and it was recognised, and I have to say, I think entirely rightly, ultimately, that putting in place a, a care plan allowing effectively high-risk self-harm in the context of seeking to manage this person's care was just simply not something which could be looked at through the prism of a doll's authorization. The stakes were so high that this was something which really did not need to come to court. Continuing with the theme of deprivation of liberty, I just want to flag that first case. None of, well, this case definitely, I'm afraid, does not have precedent value in the sense of it being a binding decision because it's a decision of District Judge Eldergill. But it's a really, I have to say, characteristic decision of, of, of District Judge Eldergill for really digging very deeply and very empathetically into a person's situation. So this was a man uh, who was discharged along with his wife um, from hospital into a care home very early on in the pandemic in a situation where there was no consideration given effectively to anything other than is this care home place available. Critically and importantly, it was not a Jewish care home. He was Jewish. His wife was Jewish. His wife then dies, and the question is, does this man stay in this care home with advanced dementia, a prognosis of really not very long to live, in circumstances where he appears settled and content, and the care home, although not a Jewish care home, are doing their best to meet his, now doing their best to meet his dietary needs and trying to play him Jewish music and Jewish movies. Sometimes he appears to respond to them, sometimes he appears not to. Isn't his best interest to stay there or move to a Jewish home? There was a lot of discussion about precisely what role his faith had played in his life. Ultimately, District Judge Eldergill comes to the conclusion it's a fine balance. It is in his best interest to move. What's fascinating is that, as with so many of these cases, one is really left wondering, well, what happened next? And clearly, so many people asked District Judge Eldergill that he's given a postscript explaining that he did move, and at least at the point of writing that postscript, all seemed to be going well, and he did seem to be responding at some deep level, despite his cognitive impairments, to being in a situation with which he was effectively culturally very familiar. Moving rather uh, sort of upstream in terms of age, 
The KL case is about 16 and 17 year olds deprived of their liberty in the community or deprived of their liberty anywhere actually because dolls can't apply to those under 18. Senior Judge Hilda had been receiving a stream of cases uh, seeking applications for authorization of 16, 17 year old deprivation of liberty. She had kept them all to herself because she was really very concerned, you can see from this judgment, about what was being put forward to her as effectively entirely standard practice in relation to teenagers. And this judgment goes into quite a lot of detail about her concerns and quite a lot of detail uh, in consequence about her, her, her very clear view that it's going to be an exceptional case where it would ever be appropriate to seek authorization of deprivation liberty of a 16 or 17 year old on the papers. So in other words, without a hearing. So it's an important case, and, and it's also important for, for, for senior judges Hilda's real kind of visible surprise at things being put forward to the court as perfectly okay, no need to effectively just, just move on, which actually show really very different and really quite challenging practices in relation to teenagers to those uh, uh, undertaken in relation to adults. Talking of challenging matters, the last case here was one of the penultimate, I think it was the penultimate uh, Court of Protection decision in 2022, DY, very challenging, uh, to me at least. This is a situation which poses the question very starkly, are you allowed to deprive someone of their liberty under a doll's authorization, where a significant aspect of the reason for doing that is public protection? The answer in this case, or actually the answer more broadly, the judge says is yes, you can say it's in their best interest, but also more importantly, because this is specific statutory provision in relation to deprivation liberty authorizations, you can say such a deprivation liberty is necessary and proportionate to the risk of harm, risk and likelihood of harm the person would suffer if the person is effectively going to suffer what I would call blowback harm from committing crime or committing harm to someone else. So in DY's case, the evidence was that if he did do something and he was subject, uh, essentially entered the criminal justice system, it would put him at real risk of self-harm. So there was enough of a link back to him that it could be said all other things being equal, that it would be in his best interest and necessary and proportionate to deprive him of his liberty. Actually, on the facts of this case, the judge found that he had got capacity to decide where to live and what care to receive. So he actually, deprivation liberty authorization fell away on a capacity basis. But even if he'd lacked capacity, the judge would have, or if he'd found that, if she'd found that he'd lacked capacity, the judge said the best interest requirement would have been satisfied. I have to say, I find this line of reasoning incredibly challenging. We spend so much of our time talking about best interests being trying to focus on the person's wishes, feelings, beliefs and values, looking at the person themselves, that we've got this strange, and I, I called it slightly Orwellian approach to best interests and this necessity and proportionality, uh, proportionality of harm in this public protection zone, where I think we're leaping through or coming up some quite contorted reasoning to say it's really on your interest not to harm someone else. Speaking for myself, I would really much prefer it if we could just be honest and say there is a strong public protection aspect here and that the law allows for that. The law currently doesn't allow for it just on that flat out public protection basis. The Law Commission had said as part of the Mental Capacity and Deprivation Liberty Project, the law should allow for it. 
that proposal uh, didn't make it through. And in fact, when the government put the mental capacity amendment bill through parliament, there was a, an argument in parliament and the government lost a debate. Uh, and such that it is very clear in future, liberty protection safeguards are gonna be tied very squarely in the same way as dolls are to risk of harm. But this DY case suggests we're continuing to have this slightly strange, in my view, blowback theory to lever in public protection. So the last kind of little theme I want to just do is practice and procedure. The first is in relation to closed hearings. So in other words, hearings which, so just distinguish between closed hearings and private hearings. Private hearings are hearings from which members of the public are excluded. Closed hearings are hearings from which a party is excluded on the basis, for instance, that the risk that that party might pose to the individual if they find out what the judge is proposing to do is so high, that's the only course of action which could be justified. So in this, in A, covert medication, the issue arises in the context of how important it is that this individual doesn't realise that they are being medicated covertly and their mother's ability not to tell them. The vice president uh, convened a committee of the, uh, uh, of the subcommittee of the Ad Hoc Rules Committee to help him produce guidance in relation to closed hearings because this issue is complicated and difficult. All I can say at this stage is watch this space. So Rigi is the only Court of Appeal case arising from the Court of Protection in 2022, and it involved the Court of Protection's powers to grant injunctions. That's the primary aspect. There was one other minor aspect which we won't talk about now. And slightly technical points um, about injunctive powers. In other words, the Court of Protection's ability to enforce its own orders, but an important clarification of the circumstances under which such injunctions can be granted. And then the very last case uh, is one of the very last cases decided in, in 2022. It's all about cross-border placements. Not a lot of people know, I suspect, that there is quite a steady stream of cases where foreign courts, quite often the High Court in Ireland, but not exclusively, foreign courts provide for an individual to receive treatment, quite often medical, uh, psychiatric treatment, in an English hospital. And an order is made which is then recognised and enforced by the Court of Protection. It gives rise to a whole host of quite complicated issues. SV is helpful, very helpful, for anyone having to do anything to do with these sorts of cases because it provides a checklist developed by Mr Justice Mostyn to identify all the things which need to be considered by the person making the application. So in other words, the placing authority and also by the judge in England and Wales thinking about, should I recognize and enforce? So watch this space in 2023. The Supreme Court is going to deliver judgment in a case uh, relating to, uh, or in the Maguire case. It's not a court protection case, but it does involve an individual who died while subject to a deprivation liberty authorization. And the actual case is about the uh, extent to which, or whether or not the coroner in the inquest should have held what's called an Article Two inquest. An Article Two inquest is, is required where, in effect, it appears that the state may have breached its obligations to secure the person's right to life. And that could have, it could have happened in a, in a range of different ways. 
this place is going to be really important for really digging into precisely what obligations are are, are required under Article eight, Article 2 in relation to people who are deprived of their liberty. What obligations does the state owe to secure them receiving adequate health care? Because that's what happened in this case. Ms. McGuire didn't receive adequate health care. She died in consequence. What should happen next? What degree of scrutiny should take place in, in those circumstances? I, I was involved in the case, but I'm afraid I can't give you any details as to when the judgment's going to be handed down. You can see from that link there, the Supreme Court hearing, and you can see the Supreme Court really grappling with the complexity of the issues and also the Supreme Court recognising, oh my gosh, this is a lot of people if we're talking about individuals deprived of their liberty. To which the answer is, yes, it is. So just lastly, a couple of resources. That top link there, you can find the mental capacity report. There won't be one in January 2023. The next one's going to be in February, but we'll keep uh, doing the monthly thereafter. Thank you very much indeed for your time watching this.